The COVID-19 pandemic isn't the first decimating disease, and today's financial downturn isn't the first economic crisis. These kinds of upheavals have happened before, and the consequences lasted long after the initial toll. What can history teach us about the long-term health and economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, and how can we prevent the worst results? From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Aaron Orlowski, and you're listening to the UCI Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Valor Arthi, who is an assistant professor of economics here at UCI and whose research is at the intersection of economic history, development, labor, and health. Professor Arthi, thank you for joining me today on the UCI Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to speak with you. So right now, people are experiencing the consequences of the pandemic. There's health pain with the deaths of family and friends, and there's economic pain with lost jobs. And these consequences are really real and immediate and top of mind. But in your view, why do we need to look at history to better understand the long-term consequences of the pandemic? Sure. Um, So there are several reasons for this. Um, I think the first and perhaps most important one, obviously, is just that history offers us the kind of time scale that we need in order to be able to think about these long run effects, you know, to be able to follow up throughout people's lives or careers to better understand the kind of total uh, life course impact on health and well-being. Um, So that's kind of one really, really big and fundamental reason. Um, You know, another kind of reason is that history offers us a lot of rich and large scale and sometimes even longitudinal data, the likes of which um, are often difficult to access with much more recent pandemics or recessions, given the kind of privacy concerns that arise when people are still, you know, living in this as people's data. Of course, there's also the fact that this particular pandemic and the corresponding downturn are kind of substantially larger in size and scope than many of the more kind of recent crises that we've seen, both economically and in terms of public health. Uh, So it makes sense to seek out, um, you know, perhaps more suitable comparators um, from a deeper kind of historical archive. And then finally, and I think that this is super um, kind of relevant as well, is that um, the pandemic is still unfolding. So, um, you know, a lot of the kind of key facts about how it works Uh, and what effects it has, um, we're still kind of coming to grips with. And so we need to be able to draw on a really diverse set of evidence um, as our best available knowledge of COVID-19 changes. So, you know, so too will our kind of comparison points change. And so what's kind of neat about history is that it offers a range of possible comparisons and scenarios um, in terms of more and less lethal pandemics. Well, and we're going to jump into those, some of those historical comparisons in a second. But before we do so, I think it would be helpful to just set the stage on the current situation. So how badly was the economy hurt by the pandemic? Yeah, um, it's been pretty bad so far. Um, It's been estimated that the US GDP fell by about 9.5% in the second quarter of 2020 relative to the same period in 2019. So kind of looking at that quarter to quarter, year on year comparison, um, we're looking at a pretty large drop in GDP. Unemployment rates during COVID-19 have also risen substantially. So we saw a peak of about 15% in April of 2020 during the kind of worst 
part of the uh, initial part of the pandemic. Um, and we're now, uh, as of September 2020, we're at about 8% unemployment. And so just for context, um, peak unemployment during the 2008 recession was around 11%. So we're kind of currently, uh, even with some kind of like little bit of recovery sitting at roughly uh, the worst of, 20, uh, of 2008. And it's worth mentioning perhaps that the you know, the economic pain has also been pretty uneven across space, across sectors and across groups. Hmm. So for instance, you know, what I've, what I've told you about are these kind of average unemployment rates, but, you know, uh, for instance, for minorities, for women, for young workers and for lower income workers, and certainly the intersection of these groups, um, the effects have tended to be uh, much worse and they've been much more harder hit, you know, than these kind of averages would tell us. So in the spring, the federal government sent out these stimulus checks that many people received as part of the CARES Act. How did that economic stimulus compare to other economic stimulus packages in history? Was that substantially larger or similar size? Yeah, it's roughly on the same order of magnitude as what we saw in response to the Great Depression, you know, which is pretty stark, I think. Um, So for instance, the CARES Act alone, kind of not including things like the PPP, uh, was roughly equal to about 10% 10% of uh, 2019 GDP. Wow. Uh, and then for kind of comparison, um, during the Great Depression, you know, federal outlays as a percentage of GDP rose from about 3.3% at the start of the Great Depression to about 9.8% by 1934, which was just after the kind of worst period of the Great Depression. So it was a response essentially on a similar scale as the response to the Great Depression. Yeah. <laughs> that is a, a huge, huge response. So when you when you look at history and you know we've been talking about the economic side so far um but do you see examples in history of the kind of double impact that the pandemic has caused today where there's both this huge health problem and an economic shock at the same time? Uh yeah, it's it's pretty rare to see a pandemic precipitate um economic disruption of this scope and scale and severity. Um, but a couple examples do come to mind. Uh, one is the Black Death or Great Plague uh, that took place in the 14th century. Um, so that was another global uh, pandemic, uh, but one which was substantially deadlier than COVID-19 has been so far. So, um, you know, it killed off roughly two thirds of Europe's population, just to give you a sense of kind of what the, the kind of magnitude of suffering was there. Um, and this sort of devastating death toll had like really dramatic demographic consequences, um, and those demographic consequences in turn had economic ones. So, you know, both the size and the age composition of the population changed as a result of this mass mortality, uh, and this, um, you know, created labor scarcity, which drove up wages. Uh, and this fact, uh, in turn, kind of precipitated other major demographic and economic and social and cultural and institutional changes. Um, you know, some research points to the the plague as having been a major contributor, actually, to sustained rises in Western European living standards over the ensuing centuries and wow. um, and to that region's kind of relatively rapid economic development compared to other global regions during the early modern period. So, you know, it, it really indicates that um, a very lethal pandemic can be tremendously economically disruptive uh, and can kind of like reshape the entire kind of economic and social and institutional structure. And you see somewhat similar evidence in sub-Saharan Africa as a result of the AIDS epidemic. Um, So that's kind of a more modern uh, example. Um, And so there we see that there is kind of uh, a large degree of mortality in prime age adults. Uh, And between that mortality response and between the fertility response to uh, the prevalence of AIDS, um, 
these factors are thought to contribute to increases in living standards for the surviving generations of, of children. So, um, you know, I think what this really indicates is that, um, you know, very lethal pandemics are likely to cause a lot of economic disruption. So I think that's what kind of sets sets this pandemic apart a little bit is that, you know, we have a pandemic that is thankfully relatively less lethal, uh, but that which many people survive and may come to face these kind of long run um, disadvantages as a result of their um, exposure either to the economic downturn or um, kind of morbidity uh, consequences from from falling ill and and, and recovering during this uh, pandemic episode. Well, and you explored some of these potential long-term consequences in a recent working paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and that looked at two particular huge events in, in history, the 1918 influenza pandemic and the Great Depression. So why are those two examples really relevant to the situation today? So I think both of them are chosen um, uh, in large part because of the scale uh, is substantially more comparable, um, you know, or other kind of features of the crisis are, are much more comparable to COVID-19 um, in its dimensions, both as a, a kind of a public health crisis, a pandemic, and as an economic downturn than are um, kind of other more recent examples uh, that we might think of, like, you know, SARS or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 1918 pandemic in particular, um, you know, kind of what we know about the disease is relatively similar to what we know about COVID-19 so far. So it has kind of a, a basic reproduction rate and a case fatality rate that is roughly similar to kind of early estimates for COVID-19. So in terms of its lethality, um, it's, mm-hmm. you know, at least of the same kind of order of magnitude. And, uh, and of course, it's also a respiratory pandemic, right? It's also an influenza pandemic. So kind of other kind of features of the epidemiology are, are somewhat similar. Uh, and then the Great Depression, of course, is uh, a really, really large scale um, economic downturn whose uh, kind of fiscal stimulus response and whose effect on consumer spending and unemployment and things like that is much more comparable than, um, and particularly at the peak of COVID-19 than what we've seen in, let's say, like the 2008 recession. So we kind of think about these as being um, perhaps better comparators. And then, of course, they um, also have the benefit of giving us, you know, uh, nearly 100 years of, of follow up data that we can look at to really understand how this impacted, um, you know, people who were in utero at the time of these experiences, people who were just entering the labor market at the time of these experiences, um, and in in some cases, even their children and grandchildren, so we can kind of understand the possibility for intergenerational impacts of these um, early experiences of crisis. Well, let's let's dive into those a little bit more. So with the 1918 influenza pandemic, what have you seen in the research um, you know, from yourself and others about the long-term health and economic consequences of the people who lived through it or the, the people who were uh, in utero at the time? Yes, so uh, there has been a wealth of research on uh, the kind of long-run experiences of uh, children who were um, in utero at the time. And one of the reasons why this is such a kind of a fertile area of research is because the 1918 pandemic had this unique kind of uh, morbidity and mortality profile. So whereas most uh, influenza strains, uh, including COVID-19, have a U-shaped Profile, so you know, young the youngest people and the oldest people are most severely affected. 
1918 influenza pandemic also had this little spike uh, amongst the prime uh, prime working age years, the prime childbearing years. So what this meant is that between uh, between it infecting a lot of people of prime age, and between it not being you know, as lethal a pandemic, say, as the, the Black Death, uh, you have a lot of people surviving. And so we have a lot of uh, kind of mothers that are perhaps pregnant um, at the same time as they're um, sick from and then recovering from the 1918 influenza illness. Uh, and so what this creates is this environment where, um, you know, fetal nutrition and fetal kind of conditions and fetal development more generally are being adversely affected. And so what this um, kind of strand of research looks at is, you uh, you know, the long run effects when when the kids that were in utero at the time become adults, enter the labor market uh, and, you know, what, what, what are their kind of job prospects look like? And so what we see in that research um, is evidence that, you know, disability rates go up in adulthood, um, you know, wages go down, the likelihood of welfare recipiency goes up. Um, the likelihood of incarceration goes up. So, you know, we see a suite of human capital and labor market related outcomes that are adversely impacted, even if, um, you know, the child themselves was not ill, but rather experienced this kind of like suboptimal uh, fetal environment as a result of their mother's sickness. And so what about the Great Depression? What uh, have you found that are some of the cascading economic impacts of that event that occurred even decades down the line? Sure. So just like the um, evidence that we've seen from the, the 1918 pandemic for those people who were born into the Great Depression uh, or who kind of experienced their kind of early childhood period during the Great Depression, they tend to have similarly adverse outcomes on their later life human capital and well-being. So they tend to have lower educational attainment, um, higher rates of disability, um, poorer cognitive, non-cognitive performance, uh, lower incomes, things like that. But then in the Great Depression, literature, there's also uh, this kind of vein of papers that looks at the effects of being exposed to Great Depression conditions um, at critical phases during your career. And in particular, this literature focuses on the potentially adverse effects of graduating into a recession or rather entering the labor market and making kind of critical training decisions during during, uh, recession conditions. What we see in these studies so far, at least, is kind of substantial and pretty persistent penalties for all sorts of workers that were severely hit by the Great Depression. Uh, And this is especially true for newer labor market entrants who often faced really different constraints than kind of pre-existing workers did uh, and faced constraints on the scope for adaptation in terms of waiting out jobs or whatever, right? So um, what we see in in this uh, set of studies is, you know, kind of large earning penalties amongst um, less educated new labor market entrants, for instance, and particularly if they were born in severely affected localities. We see kind of overall reductions in intergenerational mobility. Mm. Um, If you look at the kind of uh, trajectories of sons and fathers uh, across their careers, it appears that young men who were kind of coming of economic age during the Great Depression um, have substantially worse mobility uh, relative to their fathers than um, kind of like cohorts from 20 years before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in some of my own uh, ongoing research, we've seen kind of evidence that uh, younger workers were often being squeezed out of the kind of best local employment opportunities uh, by older workers who uh, were either remaining in the labor market 
uh, or in the labor force rather, at, at higher rates or who were re-entering. So people who had been retired or had not been working, uh, but who in response to the Great Depression uh, and the associated kind of uh, stimulus policies rejoined the labor force. You know, it appears that some of these younger workers were at a slight disadvantage, um, but they also kind of pursued these adaptive strategies at a much higher rate. So the younger workers are much, much more likely to migrate, um, whether it's from rural to urban areas, whether it's across state lines, whether it's out of the South. Uh, and kind of crucially, they were substantially much more likely to leave uh, the farming sector which, you know, could well end up being um, a kind of a gift to them huh. uh, in the long run uh, because the farming sector was declining uh, over the 20th century. And so that's something that we're looking at in ongoing research is to really understand whether, you know, perhaps, you know, despite this kind of short run suffering faced by younger workers, whether there was some sort of a long run silver lining as the broader structure of the economy changed and privileged some of the, the new occupations that they might have entered. So for for many young workers who are entering the labor force during these economic downturns, the consequences lasted for sometimes their entire careers. And so are there later health consequences that are associated with that lower economic status for for an individual later in their life? So yeah, exactly. So that's, I think, what's so insidious about having a you know a pandemic and a, and a recession at the same time is because either of these things can affect you through health or, or income channels and vice versa. So for instance, if you became ill and then survived and kind of have had some damage to your underlying health status, that might negatively impact your ability to earn a living, let's say, because it affects your um, work capacity or it gives you some sort of a disability that uh, makes it difficult to kind of achieve the labor market outcomes that you were hoping to achieve. And that loss of income in turn can uh, prevent you from being able to access quality health care later on or can otherwise like, compromise your nutrition or, or any number of other things right? can make it so that you uh, can only afford to live in localities that maybe are high pollution or have other poor quality housing. Right. And so there's this kind of feedback loop between the uh, effects on income and the effects on health. Mm. Right. And, and the same and the same thing, obviously, for uh, if you're negatively affected by a downturn is that that can that can compromise your health, um, of course, directly in the short term. Right. So there's evidence, for instance, that that recessions in general improve health on net. But there's also some evidence that shows that, you know, job loss experiences are incredibly stressful periods, raising uh, rates of suicide, rates of uh, kind of other risky uh, or otherwise dangerous health behaviors. So the income loss can directly affect your health in the short run. It can also affect it in the long run through your earning capacity uh, and vice versa. So that's this kind of dangerous, mutually reinforcing um, situation we find ourselves in with any health or economic shock. What are some of the policies or actions that society can take to try and head off this sort of long-term economic and long-term health damage? You know, one of the reasons why some of the um, effects of in utero exposure to crises are so pernicious is because the earlier in life you experience some of these adverse or positive interventions, the longer shadow they have. Mm. So kind of based on kind of aspects of biology and, and the way that these kind of investments or or harms compound, it's just the case that kind of most empirical evidence seems to point to the, the idea that investments 
closer in time to an adverse shock are much more likely to be cost effective in remediating that shock or even in potentially preventing it um, from taking root. So, you know, with this in mind and with kind of some strong evidence from the historical uh, record that shows the possibility of pretty substantial long run uh, adverse impacts, it would seem to be the case that efforts that could be taken to support the incomes of people who are facing income loss right now could be quite important to stave off some of these worse worst effects might be able to prevent people from taking jobs that would lead to skill depreciation. Um, it might enable uh, people to maintain kind of like good access to healthcare and nutrition for children who otherwise might suffer from the loss of income at the household level. It might allow people to seek out better healthcare who become um, sick with COVID-19 and, you know, mm-hmm. thankfully survive, but then are kind of faced with what do I do about this potential penalty that I'm going to carry with me for some period of time. You know, there's a strong argument to be made for the cost effectiveness of any of these types of um, interventions that could take place now, um, as opposed to kind of waiting 20 or 30 years for some of these effects to become really big and, and salient. So I think the thing that's important to consider is that there might be quite obvious adverse health effects or adverse economic effects that kind of persist, but there's also likely to be a, a number of these effects that are latent for a period of time. So you may not realize just yet how badly you've been damaged, uh, either in your career or in terms of your underlying health stock. But these effects might manifest as you grow older. Um, So 20 or 30 years later, this is certainly what we see in the the 1918 type of literature, Hmm. is um, these effects with disability and so on that tend to crop up much later in life. And at that point, they're not only detrimental to the individual person who's suffering these effects, Right, whose work capacity is diminished or who is ill and needs access to care, but they're also very costly to society in general. These are kind of adverse effects that, especially if they've compounded unnoticed over the course of 30, 40 years, end up being very burdensome on healthcare systems, on welfare systems, mm-hmm. end up costing the entire economy in terms of lost productivity of workers. And, and of course, are just bad for well-being and, you know, inequity. So I, I think these are all kind of arguments for us to take very seriously now, you know, recognizing, of course, that rightfully so, people have been very focused on mortality and how bad that is and how salient it is and how much we need to be trying to stop these issues. But I think, uh, you know, a possible oversight thus far has been the way that we're not out of the woods just when we get people to survive COVID-19 infection or, you know, we're not we're not out of the woods if you know, a particular person didn't lose their job because they're still in this economy, which is in in a downturn. And so I think trying to identify potential problem areas now that may not seem as pressing, but which have high returns to action now would be um, a place to start uh, and may save us a lot of suffering and a lot of economic costs down the line. Well, Professor Arthi, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast. Thank you so much. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe to the UCI Podcast wherever you listen.